The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Now, often my task in this podcast is to make banking and housing market and interest rates and loan-to-value ratios and debt-to-income multiples, all of that stuff actually not only relevant, but hopefully a little bit exciting. And for me, that means explaining the context and the background and the history of these things and why they're important when you're dreaming of owning your own home or when you're in an economy, which actually turns out to be a housing market with bits tacked on. That's why I'm keen to, in this week's When the Facts Change, go back to 1933, well before I was born, but a really important period in the global economy. Immediately after the Great Depression, the world's largest economy at that point, the United States, was in an awful mess, as, as was the likes of Britain and Germany and France, in large part because banks had collapsed. And we all know uh, how this plays out when there's a shock to an economy. Often people can't pay their mortgages. The banks, in desperation to get their money back, call the money back in and you get into a horrible spiral where people are having to sell their houses, they lose all their money, the banks don't get the money back. People go to the bank to ask for their deposits back and don't get them, and it all goes to hell in a handcart. That's actually what happened in 1930. Most of the American banking system collapsed. And when Franklin Delano Roosevelt came in, he actually shut down the entire American banking system for a week while it was reconstructed. So at that point, there was a real desperation to solve this problem, a fundamental problem for hundreds of years, of banking instability. How do you avoid a shock to asset prices? Let's say it's house prices or stock prices. How do you avoid that spilling over into your banking system and creating grief? So way back in 1933, after all this grief, a group of economists at the Chicago uh, University, uh, a very prominent and important uh, group of economists at the University of Chicago at that time, came up with what became known as the Chicago Plan, a solution to this problem. Now, the way that banks work is that they have some of their own capital, some of their own equity, which they then supplement with deposits and other funds from other people, which they're looking after. So, for example, when a bank makes a loan, often it will put 10%, let's say, of its own money in and then use other people's money to give you the other 90%. So in effect, they have leveraged up their own interest. And the problem for a bank is that when there's a loss, 
it very quickly wipes out their equity. And it's, it's very clear now that if you want to have a stable banking system, you want to have banks that have lots of their own equity at stake. So when we saw the world's banking system almost collapse in 2008, some of those banks had as little as 3% equity in a lot of their assets. Now, that is not nearly enough, and that's why we've seen banks over the last 15 years or so increase the amount of capital put aside, sometimes under pressure from regulators and often from shareholders. And the banking system has become more resilient. It's why when COVID struck, um, we didn't have bank collapses. Uh, And even over the last two or three years, there's only been a few bank collapses and nowhere near the same dread and grief uh, that we saw in 2008-9, but also, of course, uh, in the aftermath of the Great Depression. The Chicago plan was essentially an idea to make banks, instead of having 3% of capital or 10% of capital, to go all the way to 100% of their own equity. In a way, taking banks out of the process because if they were going to lend you money, the money they were lending you was all their money. And so if you lost some of the money, the bank would still have plenty and everyone would have confidence in the bank. So it essentially takes leverage out of asset prices. We all understand that when we go to an auction and we bid money to buy a house, we're bidding some of our money and a chunk, often quite a large chunk, of the bank's money. And the idea is if if the house price goes up, we get all the benefits of the rise in the equity. And the problem, of course, is when a house price goes down, you also are the first to lose. You're the one that uh, you, you go underwater, if you like. And that's something the banks have to worry about. So over time, this idea of uh, increasing the amount of capital the banks have reducing the leverage is in a way a way to reduce the amount of air pumped into the value of assets. Now, New Zealand for a long time had a relatively cheap housing market where you could, in theory, buy a house with just two to three times your income. And up until the early 2000s, that was the case. Now, of course, most house prices are anywhere between eight and 10 times income. And for a whole bunch of people who obviously can't afford to save the huge deposits required, uh, this has wiped a generation, most of a generation, out of being able to buy a house under their own steam. So they're having to rely on the bank of mum and dad to get hold of the deposit. Now you could say, well, why do they need a deposit at all? Why can't they just borrow 100% from the bank and really go for it? And there was a period Uh, during the early 2000s overseas and uh, briefly at various periods between 2004 and as recently as 2021 when you could get, you know, 95, 100% loans, um, party time. However, uh, the Reserve Bank and central banks globally and and prudential regulators have realised the best thing they can do is try to restrain people from their instincts to really go for it during the good times. And one way they've done that is to restrict the loan-to-value ratio. Way back in 2013, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was one of the first to do that. And that helped restrict the growth of house prices. You might not believe it, but actually if there had been no loan-to-value ratio controls, instead of an average house price of a million dollars, you could legitimately argue it would be more like two or three million. 
In many ways, we should thank the gods for the loan-to-value ratios from stopping house prices from going completely nuts. Now, how do we know this is uh, the case? Well, we had a little natural experiment during COVID when the Reserve Bank removed the loan-to-value ratio restrictions completely. And what did we see? Bang, a 40 to 50% rise in house prices almost overnight, and the Reserve Bank had to scramble to put those restrictions back in. Now, why am I talking about LVRs again? It's all about DTIs. We've got a new acronym to play with in this world of trying to buy a house, the debt-to-income multiple. In fact, the Reserve Bank would have quite liked to introduce the DTI way back in 2013. But when the LVRs were put in, the Reserve Bank thought that would be enough and that they would be able to use the DTIs at some later date. As it turned out, it was very difficult to put it in because politically it became very controversial. The introduction of the LVRs, uh, we all think it's natural now, but it was supposed to be temporary back then. In this week's When the Facts Change, I have a romp through the history of New Zealand's loan-to-value ratio controls and investigate this issue of how much leverage and bank lending plays a part in pumping up the value of house prices because the Reserve Bank is introducing a debt-to-income multiple control. It came out with a consultation paper this week, which as it turns out is reasonably uncontroversial for uh, people in the markets. They don't think it's going to push prices down too much. Luckily, because the Reserve Bank is doing it at a time when interest rates are already high and a lot of the heat has gone out, and also because they're doing it in a way which eases restrictions on LVRs as well as at the same time, at the same time as putting restrictions in on DTIs. That's explained, I hope, in this interview with Helen O'Sullivan, who is the CEO for real estate at Velocity, a data company that looks at real estate prices. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Tanakwe, and welcome to Helen O'Sullivan, to the When the Facts Change studio of this, the spin-off, at least remotely. Uh, lovely to see you, Helen. Tanakwe, Bernard, lovely to see you too. Been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. You're the CEO of Real Estate for Velocity Global now, but have been in and around the housing, real estate uh, industry for quite some time and so, so have I. Uh, we, we, I have this view that the most important things of the world are house prices and interest rates, but also, you know, whatever restrictions the Reserve Bank is putting on people borrowing money to buy houses. And I seem to recall quite some time ago uh, when you were the CEO of the Real Estate Institute talking about these funny things we'd never heard of before called LVRs way back in 2013 when they were being introduced. Um could you, for those people who maybe were still in short pants and um, uh, unaware of the, the ins and outs of the mortgage market back in 2013, could you give us a sense of when the LVRs were introduced, uh, you know, how much of a big deal this was and what people thought would happen and what actually happened? Yes, Bernard, those far-off, heady times when loan-to-value ratios were a pretty brand-new tool uh, and, and quite um, quite groundbreaking on the part of the Reserve Bank in New Zealand at the time, made lots of very interesting periodicals uh, offshore um, for those who are avid readers of uh, uh, 
you know, Reserve Banking International. That's me, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Figured it would be. Yeah, so look, at the time, uh, I, I was CEO of the Real Estate Institute. We had had quite some upheavals in the real estate market at the time, particularly with regard to volumes, you know, because it's always a feature of the New Zealand market uh, that downturns are most visibly expressed in drops in volume as opposed to drops in price. And with uh, the GFC and then the Christchurch earthquake, we'd had huge downturns uh, in, in transaction numbers. At the time, I recall sort of agents saying to me, my God, we were just starting to get you know, back to a sort of vaguely normal kind of a keel. Uh, and then the election came along and everybody stopped and thought about that. Uh, and, and then the LVRs turned up and, you know, it's just sort of throwing the whole thing into into a tailspin. What are we going to do? And uh, so 12 years later, 10, 13 years later, 11 years later, they're just part of the drinking water. It's really interesting how much they've become something, you know, at the time you were speaking absolute Greek uh, and, and now it's just kind of like, yeah, LVRs. Yes, and they were supposed to be temporary and now they're very permanent. And as you say, LVRs, they're like part of the the air. That, that Greek language, that acronym <laughs> is something we all know if we're thinking about buying a house. But now there's a new acronym that's going to be coming in, the DTI, the Debt to Income Multiple. The Reserve Bank uh, announcing this week uh, its proposal for a uh, uh, new levels for a debt-to-income multiple control and also some offsetting changes to the LVRs. Uh, could you give us a sense, uh, as the um, the CEO of real estate at Velocity Global, uh, how you think this might affect the market, given that you're regularly speaking to mortgage brokers and banks and watching uh, how flows of money are going through and what's happening to valuations? Like you, Bernard, I am a complete housing market tragic. So, yep, this is a huge interest to, to me. Um, in a funny sort of way, I, I think uh, LVRs have always been a proxy for DTIs uh, in the sense that, and possibly a more appropriate proxy in the sense that what DTIs measure is the serviceability, ultimately, uh, of the debt that you are taking out in order to purchase the asset. Uh, that you're contemplating. And when market values fall, they fall across the board. Uh, and so whereas the whether or not you can pay your mortgage remains determined by the uh, your, your income levels and your income levels relative to the debt that you've, you've taken on board. And ultimately the RB's goal here is financial market stability. Uh, and ultimately, from the sort of system-wide point of view, that kind of mass ability of borrowers to continue servicing their loans and maintaining the solvency of the bank uh, is really down to their income and their ability to keep covering those loans. So in, in many ways, I think this is probably um, the objective that was kind of always in the background when the LVRs uh, were first mooted. Mm. It's worth sort of teasing apart the different ways that the LVRs and the DTIs work. The loan-to-value ratio controls really do force people to have a lot of money for a deposit, and so the deposit becomes a really important limiter for people to be able to bid 
for a home, whereas the DTIs are independent of the valuation of the of the home. And it means that uh, you have to have a relatively high income combined to be able to get a mortgage to bid for a home. Uh, could you tell us about how, you know, the LVRs alone and quite a, and done in quite a blunt way, at least initially, how that um, affected the market in terms of, you know, who, who was hurt or helped the most? Yes, I think as you kind of, you know, it's, it was always the first home buyers, I think, who were most impacted from, from the start of the LVRs. Because as you point out, you know, if the house price is $500,000, having a, and, and you need a 20% deposit, that's a big hurdle and that's a blunt sort of hurdle to, to jump over. And again, too, in the very early days of the LVRs, banks were not taking any chances, right, because their banking licences looped on this. Uh, so whatever the, the threshold was, they whatever the envelope was, they gave themselves plenty, plenty of runway uh, because you didn't really ever as a bank, I suppose, want to wake up Monday morning and find you'd breached that little um, KPI. <laughs> Somewhat catastrophic <laughs> consequences. It's number one on the list. Don't lose the licence. I reckon. I reckon. Uh, and so, you know, who are the people who are going to be least liable to least likely to be able to find uh, a twenty percent deposit? Absolutely, first home buyers. Over time, there have been a number of little tweaks to the rules that sort of try to iron out some of those unintended consequences. Uh, and new builds is sort of another area where, again, where um, perhaps not strictly financial stability, but if you sort of what what drives the what what enables the um, market to keep a lid on house price increases uh, and unexpected house price inflation that would be regular supply and new builds are the ones that you know if we're talking new builds as opposed to new builds off the plans they always have a level of uncertainty about them so if I want eight hundred thousand dollars to buy a, a new build land and building package the prudent lender is always going to go, well, you might need a margin there because what happens if you get to the point where you haven't got the windows in but you run out of money? I'm always, the bank, you know, you're always going to want to have a little bit of margin. So they became the the loans that were sort of most impacted. And again, what are you trying to, what are you trying to encourage? House price stability, how do you get that? Well, throttling the supply of new builds was never a good idea as part of that, uh, and so, you know, tweaks were made. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They, they've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. 
Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And just looking at the timing of the the introduction of these new debt-to-income multiple controls, the Reserve Bank is aiming to have it in place by the middle of the year. It's consulting until the middle of March. How do you think the introduction of the 20% speed limit uh, on uh, lending at more than six times income for owner-occupiers and more than seven times income for investors – how is that likely to affect the market? Because if these rules had been applied back in uh, 2022, uh, for example, owner-occupiers uh, were seeing uh, more than 30% of, of new lending was being done at six times uh, income. And for investors, uh, you were seeing more than 40% at more than seven times income, which is the limit. Now, since then, of course, as the market's cooled down and as interest rates have gone up, the real throttle, if you like, on new lending has been not whether or not you've got the deposit or how much income you've got, it's, it's more about the the interest rate. And with interest rates now right up there, uh, that's that's really driven down the share of lending going at, at, at the uh, above the speed limit, if you like. So what they're doing in, in a way is applying a speed limit after everyone slowed their cars down, <laughs> which makes everyone feel, oh, it's not so bad after all. Whereas if they'd jumped in there when everyone was doing 100 kilometres and said, right, you all have to slow down to 70 kilometres an hour now, that would really have had an impact. So how do you think the timing of this after the boom, if you like, after the big surge in this uh, high LVR, high DTI lending, how is that going to affect their market now? I think you're... Car analogy is a good one, Bernard. Uh, the thing is, if you take a, a road full of cars doing 100 kilometres an hour and you suddenly tell everybody to slow down to 70, you generally cause a horrible pile-up. So <laughs> introducing the 70 limit after everybody's slowed down uh, is probably the best time to, to do it. And what's driven that, again, as you noted uh, earlier, is that it's the interest, the level of interest rates now mean that most borrowers who would find themselves uh, outside the DTI limit are already outside the interest servicing limit uh, because the banks, you know, if, if average interest rates are sort of at the 7% mark, banks are applying a nearly 9% rate as the test to their serviceability. Counterintuitive sometimes when, if you were to look at the fact, some of that may or may not be fixed, but nonetheless, that, that's sort of, you know, the, the blunt rule of thumb as to how it's applied. And as a result, yes, we're in a situation where, you know, applying this layer onto the market now at a point where 
most things that are going to be caught by this change would also potentially have been outside other uh, restrictions as well. Again, really logical time to introduce it because what are we not trying to achieve? A whole bunch of upending of, you know, and unintended consequences because, you know, what I guess you don't want is for finance to be the lever that, that, that's a switch that turns the market on and off. Uh, and, you know, there are enough issues in getting and maintaining a consistent supply of affordable housing in our market already, thanks all the same, without uh, adding a new one. And I think, you know, the timing of this works really well in the sense that you've got that there as a security blanket because if you cast your mind back to sort of 21, 22, you know, the serviceability when the interest rates are at two and a half, three percent God, did we ever get there, you know, three or four percent um, is quite different on, you know, an income that, that on, on, that, on a debt, that on a million dollars debt. But cast forward to today when the interest, to interest rates are seven and a bit percent, you know, that's nearly potentially doubling your interest rate servicing bill. And for most people, most borrowers, that's going to be a significant impost. So had we had this limit in place when that uh, kind of mayhem kicked off, then, you know, there might be, there may, the peak in those days may have been lower. Mm. And the timing too around interest rates is fascinating because right now interest rates are relatively stable. The Reserve Bank has, in its last forecast, said that it won't be cutting interest rates this year. The markets think um, now that we're more likely to have interest rate cuts around the middle of this year. Uh, so what they're doing is getting in early, in a way, and building a guardrail. In fact, that's a word they've used in their consultation. We're building a guardrail so that when everyone puts their foot on the accelerator again, there is actually some armco there, in a way, on the road to stop uh, the the market um, getting too too hot and and fast and, and dangerous with it. Um, do you think that helps uh, in a way with the um, the industry response and the and the response of maybe first home buyers and investors who, uh, if the market was hot, would be chafing more against these restrictions? Yeah, look, I've got to say, there's a lot of logic in putting in guardrails before accidents. I don't know. Call me old-fashioned, I think that seems smart. <laughs> and the whole put the guardrail in before the car plummets off the side of the cliff. You know, hey, God damn it! look at us learning the lessons of the past. <laughs> Isn't that a thing to take forward? And just, um, just finally, look, thinking back um, over those 10 years of the LVRs, uh, um, initially there was a lot of pushback uh, politically and from banks and and others. But what's your view now on you know 10, 11 years on from the introduction of LVRs and now finally the uh, incoming introduction of DTIs? Just stepping back, you know, what's your view on whether it was a good idea in the long run? So backing up just a tiny bit, I, I think one of the key things about learning from the past is that we there were lots of little tweaks that were applied after the fact, uh, and particularly those 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 tweaks around the edges to ensure um, first home buyers, new builds weren't sort of disproportionately affected. Because what you don't want to do is change the mix in the market again, right? 
Uh, you you want to see those factors playing out again without the bank being the, the the thing that makes that happen or not happen. So um, you kind of want the RB's settings to be neutral to that kind of behaviour as opposed to driving or not driving it. So I, I think all of my comments are sort of caveated by as long as we make sure we bring forward that flexibility to respond to the unintended consequences and that the settings as they are imposed as they come in take into account the potential to bring in unintended consequences uh, and enable, you know, some kind of mechanism um, to A, forecast and adjust for that, and then B, if we find it's not quite working that way, uh, to adjust for it. And I, I, my take on it is that that's very much how the RB has tended to do that. It's just sometimes their mechanism can be a bit clunky in terms of, you know, their statutory process in terms of having to go through consultation, et cetera, et cetera. It can take a little bit longer um, to, to bring that in than perhaps the market, uh, and I'm speaking with my market hat back on, um, might prefer. But broadly, broadly, again, you know, 10, 15, 10, 12 years ago, LVRs were a thing from space. <laughs> we treated them like a thing from space uh, and, you know, but now they're just they're pretty they're in the background. They've always been a little bit clunky, I think, um, in the sense that the the managing and monitoring of the LVRs has a whole bunch of complexity to it that from the outside you might not necessarily kind of pick. But from a bank's point of view, you know, managing your pipeline is is becomes a little bit challenging. You know, so that sort of brought in. Because if you know how much, how much low value, how much lending of what category LVR do I have? I'm not hundred percent sure. If I've said to Bernard Hickey, you can borrow this amount of money to buy a house that's Y amount of value, because what happens tomorrow when Bernard turns up with his piece of paper in his house and says, "Huzzah!" You know, I'm settling in three weeks' time. Uh, and at the same time as Bernard shows up, so does uh, so does seventeen other people, and you're like, "Oops, we were expecting ten. Now we've got twenty. You know, what does that do?" So it sort of resulted and has resulted in a slightly more throttled pipeline than you might otherwise have have had, and again drives that level of conservatism. If the limit's twenty, I never want to get anywhere near 15 because you know catastrophic consequences yada 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 Alan O'Sullivan the CEO of Velocity Global Real Estate thank you very much uh, for coming on to Win the Facts Change always a pleasure kia ora Bernard Win the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network together with KiwiBank Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Talo for Lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.